0: There's a, we're going to jump into um, Matthew 28. You can go ahead and turn there. As Carl mentioned here a little bit ago, we're going to have um, this weekend coming up. Brian Fuller is going to be sharing the lesson next Sunday, talking about sharing our faith with our children. And um, on Saturday evening, there will be more information going out on Flocknote. he's going to uh, present some, uh, some different ideas, things that have worked really well for their children's programs, because, boy, that's important—something for us to really get excited about. If, if nothing else, is that our kids grow up to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbors as ourselves. Amen. And that's something that all of us can get on board with and get excited about. Is how can we, as a church, be people that uh, be a church that shows God, trains our kids to love God, and invites people in from our world that don't know God, so that their kids can come in and learn about this great news that we have. And so we're going to, that's, as most of our world is in a holding pattern, trying to figure out what's going to happen next, we've really tried to be deliberate and say, all right, just because our world is in a holding pattern does not mean that God's kingdom is in a holding pattern, and his mission is still continuing. And so our job is to continue to uh, do whatever we can as people, listen to his calling so that we can continue to seek and save the lost, make disciples and grow disciples in his kingdom. Sound good? And so everybody's welcome. If you're a uh, young parent and you've got little kids especially, uh, you guys are welcome to come and participate because this isn't something that uh, just a few of us are on board with, but all of us are working together for our kids to grow, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbors themselves. And it takes all of us working together to be able to, to accomplish that. I know that for myself, I am so thankful for the church here in so many ways, but specifically is there are so many of you who are adults that interact with my kids, that show godliness to my kids in ways that, uh, that, that I can't, or ways that are different than I will. And I'm just so thankful that my children see godliness from other people and see that example. And this is just a way that we can be more deliberate about that. So that's something I'd encourage you. There's more information will come out in Flocknote and jump in and, and uh, participate. Everybody's welcome. Okay, we've spent some time here the last month and a half or so talking about is there a God and why am I a Christian? We, talked way, we started way back with is there a God out there and what are some things that help us to see that we're not alone here, that this isn't everything we look around isn't just this big accident, but there's something really amazing that has created us. And we've gotten closer to the question of why am I a Christian? Why did I choose to be a follower of Christ instead of a follower of something else out there? Because there's lots of different options. And so today we're going to talk about this, uh, this question more. Why am I a Christian? And specifically deal with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we're going to fast forward here just a little bit. And I want you to think about this quote from Leo Tolstoy. How many of you have ever heard of Leo Tolstoy? Okay. Yeah, famous guy. Um, he's a... a prolific Russian writer. And this is something that he wrote, and it gives pause for us to think. "'My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live, it was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything?' It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Pretty dark quote from him, right? He gets to 50 years old and says, wait a minute, I'm mortal and is this worth anything? Is there anything beyond death that I can see coming that is going to last or be valuable in the future? And is... It's worth anything. And he said that thought brought him even to the, the point of just taking his own life. Because if we have to live just for this life, ultimately, that can be pretty depressing, can't it? If we, all the work that we do, all the effort that we put forth, everything that we do, if it just comes down to, well, we just turn to dust afterwards and there's nothing more, man, there's something in us as people that causes us to think there's got to be something more, right? There's got to be something bigger than this. There's got to be something greater, Right? That we wrestle with that. And so we're going to spend some time talking about the resurrection of Jesus and why the resurrection of Jesus absolutely matters. Now, in our world, those that would be more skeptical... Uh, sometimes we'll put the burden on people who, are, who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, saying, all right, come on, people don't raise from the dead. I've never seen somebody raised from the dead. You've got to have the burden of proof is on you to demonstrate this. And there is that is true. It's not, it's not untrue. But there's another side to this as well, is when we look at the evidence that's out there, there's a burden that is placed on skeptics as well to say, will I look at the evidence that is there and accept that or deny it? And so look at this quote here. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. Because that's important. If someone rises from the dead, that should cause us to pause and consider what he's saying, right? If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's it, isn't it? Is that if Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, then that gives a pause to every human being on the earth that comes afterwards to say, okay, wait a minute, this guy has something to say. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then whatever, take it or leave it, just like any other teacher that has come along. Maybe he's got some great stuff to say, but we can pick and choose. But if he did, in fact, raise from the dead, we can't pick and choose so easily. So the burden of proof is on figuring out whether Jesus really did raise from the dead or not. So let's look at uh, some examples here, or some some discussions that we can have from from the question: Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Okay, Scripture tells us that there was an empty tomb after Jesus was buried. So look at Matthew 28, and I'm going to read through part of this, and and we'll discuss it as we go along. Matthew 28, verse 1, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like that of lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Terrified. These hardened Roman legionaries that had seen battle are terrified when they see this angel come down from heaven because he's so powerful and scary. Verse 5, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Can you imagine the emotions going through them here? They're terrified that they saw this powerful being, terrified that Jesus isn't in the tomb, but there's some sort of joy there that's like, wait a minute. He's, wait a minute, there's something great happening here. There's something powerful that's happening here. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And we'll pick up from there here in just a minute. But this is one of the accounts, and there's several. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Paul writes about it uh, later as well, or at the same time writes about it in uh, the later parts of the New Testament. But there's a lot of examples and there's a lot of eyewitnesses here that say there was a tomb that was empty. Now there's things that happen that we know about that someone gets really sick and we think that they're not going to make it and then they pull through or there's things like that that happen or there's somebody's heart that stops and you put the electricity on them and boom, here they come back, right? In our world, those type of things happen. But we're not talking about those sort of things. We're talking about three days that someone is in a tomb, sealed up, and then the stone is removed, and that person is able to walk out. Okay, the empty tomb is something that's very important here. Now, there's part of us that can say, or there's part of us as in mankind that can say, hey, wait a minute here, this is just a story from a long time ago. This can't really be real, can it? This can't be something that is legit, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But if we stop and look, if we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the letters of Paul, is that those books, even scholars that do not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, will not debate that all of those books, all of those letters were written not very many years after this event supposedly had taken place. Hey, that's one of the marks of good history is you don't have long, long, long periods of time between the event and someone writing about it. And not only that, and we've talked about this before, so I didn't go into some of this, there's a lot of copies of the New Testament that is out there from just a few years after Jesus raised. You know John was written somewhere, is the last of the Gospels, written somewhere around 90 A.D. We'll just guess that. You know there's pieces of a copy of John? I've seen them. That date from like 125. There's not a lot of copies made from 90 to 125, right? And so these testimonies of Jesus raising from the dead represent good history because they come from the time just right after right after this was supposed to have, supposedly to have happened. There's something I had never thought about until this week in this in my reading and research I, that. Uh, that hit me. Because if you notice, when you read through the Gospel of Matthew there, in, 20, in chapter 28, what we just read, who are the first people that see Jesus raised from the dead? Who do you see there? Women, right? We see the women that was raised there. Okay, I've always just read over that. Okay, fine, yeah, that's great. This is how things happened. Something that never occurred to me, and I didn't realize, is that in this time, in this period... For example, if uh, you and I had to go to court for something, that women were not considered reliable witnesses because they're so emotional, because they've got all this, that, whatever else. And so, if, yeah, I can see your faces. Yeah, you're not liking that, especially if you're ladies. Okay, I'm just telling you this is, this is the world that, that this is written in, okay? And so if you go to court, women were not considered accurate witnesses. And so, if there's a scam that's going on here, why on earth would you choose women to be the first people that are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus? And I wonder if there wasn't pressure of, of the story of, of Jesus' resurrection at the beginning. And I'm just speculating here of some saying, oh, come on, let's not have the women be the first people to see Jesus. Let's have somebody with character that we can really, uh, really get some, uh, that, that this, this testimony really holds some water there. But that's not what happened. The Bible, the historical record, chose people that would not, at this point in time, have been the first people chosen, if we were going to make a case, to see the resurrection of Jesus. And I think there's something powerful in that, is that even though society would have looked at this and said, okay, wait a minute here, those shouldn't be the first people to see Jesus, that's not going to hold water, the fact remains that that's who God chose to see Jesus first. Some women that went to the tomb. And therein, it just seems that, man, that's not something you make up, right? That's not something you make up if you don't choose the strongest witnesses. And so there's the empty tomb that's there. But let's talk about some witnesses here as well. uh, Look at what is written here behind me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul writes this. And he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. If you look at a map of the Roman world, and some of you may have in your Bibles a map of the Roman world in the back. Anybody have a map of the Roman world in the back of the Bible? Yeah, okay. So you know. You can look right there. If you look at where that area is now, it encompasses all the way over from Spain way up into France and all the way over into uh, way, way east into Iraq and, and Iran and some of those areas. Now, today, in our world, you couldn't just get in a car and drive from place to place. There's some of those places that if you have a U.S. passport, you're not even allowed to enter. Now, those kind of places not tough. It's not not easy to just travel like that. But in the world that this is written in, the world that Jesus was raised in, Rome is a place that, a empire that had said, "We're going to have what they called Pax Romana." It's Latin for the Roman peace, and people are going to be able to travel freely. And because our legionaries are stationed everywhere. People are able to do business and travel and learn and celebrate in peace. And that's what is going to happen. In fact, I've shared, if you get in the Campidoglio in Rome, you look at Rome, it's just like a wagon wheel. The roads go out from the center of Rome to the rest of the world. The Appian Way, Laurentina, all these different roads that take off and go these different directions. And so people could travel. And so it's if Paul is saying, as he is writing this, Jesus raised from the dead, and a whole bunch of us saw it. If you look at the uh, example, or the the list here, he appeared to Peter, and then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. There's a whole lot of people that Jesus appeared to here, and go and ask anyone. Get on one of these roads, and go find these people, and ask them. There's nothing hidden here, there's nothing being swept under the rug, all of this is real, all of this is valid, and it happened, go and ask. That's good history there. When you've got scriptures that are, or accounts that are written shortly afterwards with a lot of witnesses, whole lots of witnesses, unlikely witnesses, and then people that are witnesses saying, come and ask us, we'll tell you the story of what happened. That's all considered Good history. In fact, there's some things that Julius Caesar did or other people from that time period that we just have a few, very, very, very few copies of evidence saying that this is what happened, but you have those stories written in history books with no one questioning them. But much, much more evidence, many, many more copies, greater history. Thanks, Gary. He's pushing me. Tell me to go this way. Get back, in the, get back in the camera. Thanks, Gary. That Jesus raised from the dead... And so if we're going to to wrestle with history, we have to be honest about it, right? Now think about this one more thing before we move on to another question here. The empty tomb and the witnesses both have to happen for it to be valid, right? Because if there's an empty tomb but there's no witnesses, what's the natural response? Jesus' disciples came and stole the body and they hid it somewhere. That's what happened. Or if there is witnesses but there's no empty tomb, what happens is the Romans just have to open that tomb and say, you guys can say whatever you want, but here's the body, the decomposed body, right here. End of story. Ridiculous. It didn't happen. That's good history, and we have to wrestle with that. Here's another question that we can wrestle with. Is a resurrection even possible? The short answer is no. It's not possible. When we die, we die, right? We all know that. I don't know that I've ever, well, I've never seen anybody that passed away and then came up out of the ground. That's just, that's never happened. That's not part of our, our, uh, our way of, that's not something we go to immediately, is it? I mean, that's, that's not what we think. Uh, when we ask ourselves, is resurrection even possible? Sometimes what comes up is the, the discussion, that's uh, called by some, is chronological snobbery meaning that everybody in the past was an idiot and really didn't understand what was going on because they were so consumed by myths and all that sort of thing that we can't really believe anything that miraculous happened in the past because these people really didn't know. You know, They would have had a dream or got some bad mushrooms or something like that, and they just they didn't know what really was going on. Chronological snobbery is what it's called. But let's back up and look at these people that were living at this point in time. Now, Rome was an amazing city. Over a million people, and you can still see it today, the aqueducts that bring water into the city, some of them are even still used, I understand. Amazing, amazing architecture that happens. A million people live there. Okay, the next city in the Western world to top a million people after that was London, and it wasn't for more than 1,000 years later. 1,700 years later, something crazy like that. I can't remember exactly. Amazing what the Romans were able to do. Okay, The Romans... We're not some country bumpkins that were consumed by superstition and, and all of that. They had a lot of stuff together. And in their world, th- their mind wouldn't go naturally to, hey, somebody came from the tomb alive and, and is raised. That's not where their mind went immediately. Their understanding was, and they're as broad and diverse as, as we would say Americans are, as well as our understanding of the afterlife. But some would say, hey, the, the body is, is corrupt and, and, uh, and you have the, the soul that is incorruptible. And as soon as the body passes away, the soul is released and is free to go on. And there's no soul in its right mind would come back to the body because that's bad, it's evil. Okay, that's some of the, the Greek philosophy that, that was prevalent in Rome as well. Now, others would say, hey, you know, the, the soul, if it is released from the body, it dies and it's gone. You, you die and the lights go out and it's finished. And all that's, it's, it's over. The Jews had a different perspective. Now, it seems that on some level they believed in a resurrection, even though understanding what that was is, is hard to determine. But it seems that their understanding of any type of resurrection that happened was going to happen when everything else was restored. When the lamb was going to lay down to the, with the lion, when the children were going to play near the nest of the, the cobra, all that kind of thing. When everything is brought back and the world is as, as it's supposed to be, then there's some sort of resurrection happens there. So if Jesus raises from the dead, or someone raises from the dead, their natural response would be to look around and say, wait a minute, where's the lamb and the lion laying down together? Where is... Where's all the good things, all the renewal of all things? Because I don't see any of it. The world still looks like a mess. And so the point is, is that in the mind of the people that are here at this point in time, they're not going to naturally go to, oh, wow, a resurrection has happened. Think about this quote here. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead in this area. And uh, the New Testament even talks about other people claiming to be the Messiah during this time. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries, whose leader had been executed by authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he was. And if we're going to be honest with history, we have to wrestle with that. Think about this. Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Suddenly, out of the blue, there's this new worldview that comes. Now worldviews tend to not change extremely quickly, unless something really prompts it, uh, or unless a military comes on comes in. Like for example, the Romans were able to change the, uh, the worldview of a lot of nations around them because their military came in, wiped people out and said, "This is what you're going to believe, or "We're going to give you grief." Okay, well, sure, I'm on board with that. But the Jews understood something from history, and they understood something from the old law, is how did it turn out for them when Moses went up on the mountain during the Exodus? And they thought, wait a minute, he's gone for, we don't know where this Moses guy went, he's disappeared. So we better figure out uh, who brought us up out of Egypt. So we're going to take all our gold and we're going to make this golden calf. And this golden calf is something that brought us out of Egypt. He's the represents this God that brought us out of Egypt. How did that pan out for him? Not very well, right? And what happened when the Israelites, time after time after time, went back to idolatry, went back to sacrificing their children to Molech or some of these gods? Did that ever pan out well for them? No. They learned something very important from their history, is that you stay away from worshiping idols. And you look back in the Old Testament, did the Israelites ever bow down and worship a person? That's a bad deal. You know, we don't do that. That's, that's not something we're about to do. Then how do we explain what we just read here a second ago in Matthew chapter 28, in verse 8, It says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and, what does the text say there? Worshipped him. If you go to uh, chapter 28, verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they... Worshipped him, but some doubted. Do you see what happens here? Is you've got all of these Jewish people that have grown up that know their history very well that say, We're not going to bow down and worship somebody. We're not going to worship an image. We've learned that from our history. There's no way we're going back to that. And then something happens, and all of a sudden, you have people that are Jewish bowing down and worshiping someone. And it doesn't stop there. Within months, There's thousands more, and within years, there's many, many thousands more that are worshiping this guy named Jesus. And we have to answer the question, why? And the only solution that I can come up with is there are enough witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus that they realize that Jesus was no mere mortal, but he was something much, much more than that, is that he was God himself that came down, died for our sins. And so people in this time period, let's not paint them as these country bumpkins that just didn't know any better. Oh, well, this this myth came around that Jesus raised from the dead, so hey, let's jump on that and we'll see what happens. Early Christians didn't invent the tomb and the meeting or sighting of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the Scriptures. Okay? Because those experiences get old. We get past them, right, when persecution comes. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. And what happened with the people that ended up following Jesus in this time is they, they heard about the resurrection or they saw it themselves. They had to take a, step, a few steps back and say, I've got to wrestle with this. I've got to wrestle with this because I don't believe that someone can raise from the dead. But there's so many people saying that he did. There's so many other things that I wrestle with here that I just don't know if this is even possible. I don't know if this if this is real. But when I look at the evidence that is there, I can't help but believe that Jesus, in fact, did raise from the dead. And they changed. And really, we're met with the same decision, aren't we? is that we have to ask ourselves the question, did Jesus raise from the dead or not? Do I really believe that Jesus raised from the dead? When I look at the historical evidence and I weigh all of this, do I really believe it? And there's a burden of proof on us to say, I'm going to believe it. But you know what? For someone who is a skeptic, there's a burden of proof there. Because they have to look at the history as it is and say, intellectually, honestly, we've got to answer these questions. Why did all these things we talked about today, why did those things pan out? And if we... There's a whole lot more. And I didn't go through the breadth of the depth of the discussions that are out there that help us understand and believe that the resurrection of Jesus is there did happen. But these things are convincing to me. And so we ask the question, do I believe that Jesus is raised from the dead? If I say... Yes, history indicates that Jesus must have raised from the dead. Then I've got to, make a, I've got to ask another question, is what does this mean for me and my life? Does it mean that I need to change some things? And that is maybe the most important for, in question for us here, because most of us here will have already decided that Jesus raised from the dead, and that's why we're here. And if you haven't, man, wrestle away, okay? wrestle alongside us. And um, and and that's okay. That's that's good. That's great. But if we've already made the decision that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead, the next question is, what am I going to do about it? And that is a very important question for us because if we say, well, Jesus did raise from the dead, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and I'm going to do whatever I want. Man, we're not being intellectually honest. We're not being historically honest. And we're just sweeping this under the rug because if Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, it means something for us. And what it means is that I have to wrestle with something that is very unpopular in our world. It's our tendency, even in, uh, I don't know how many times I've had the conversation with people who are looking for a church, say something like, well, I would love to find a church that meets my needs, that suits me, that a church that really fits what I'm all about. And you see what's being said is, I want a church that I can walk into and I already am on the same page there. Jesus never operated that way. Jesus never operated that way at all. And Jesus, being God, has always taken issue with aspects of our society. And if we do believe that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, then we're going to have to wrestle with some different things like, wait a minute, why is the definition of morality in the world I live in different than the definition of morality that Jesus talks about? Or is my citizenship in this world, or is it in heaven? Because if it's in heaven, I've got to decide how I'm going to, I've got to interact differently with the people around me. Or... My mission in life, if my mission in life is to make all the money I can or find the greatest amount of happiness I can, but I realize that Jesus raised from the dead, then I've got to come to grips with and wrestle with the mission of God may be different for my life than what I want. In fact, it will be. And I've got to submit to that. I've got to submit to God's purpose for me. If you look at uh, just down from where we were at in Matthew 28... Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 18. It says, then Jesus, or let me back up to verse 16. There's something else I want to pick out here. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay, Even after seeing the resurrected Jesus, there's still some people that doubted. Okay, But I don't get the impression that Jesus is uh, striking them uh, with lightning right there. Even seeing it face to face, there's some doubts that can be there. And so if you're in a place that, that you doubt that or you wrestle with it, it's okay. Like I said, walk alongside us. Then Jesus said to them, Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Son, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Beautiful, beautiful description of the mission of God right here is, I want you, now that you have seen me raised from the dead, your job is to go out and make disciples of other people. Tell them about my resurrection and help them to understand what it means to be disciples. So go out and make disciples and grow disciples. That's your mission in this life. And it's so easy for us to get tangled up in all sorts of different things, but really it boils down to those things. Is Every one of us has been tasked with sharing our faith, the faith of God, the story of the resurrection, with our neighbors and helping the people around us grow to love Jesus more. That's it. That's what it boils down to. That's what our mission is. And because of that mission, we have a future. We can talk about heaven. We've talked about heaven in the last months. Is that God is preparing a place for us to go with him where there's no more anger, there's no more crying, there's no more pain, all that kind of stuff. Everything is put together as it should. And because of that you see that the early Christians did not respond to fear like they had before. Cancer, is cancer scary? Maybe, but not like it is before. Because if we pass away or as we get older, we're just that much closer to heaven, right? We don't have to be afraid of that stuff anymore. We don't have to be afraid of bad politics. We don't have to be afraid of wars that happen around us or famine or economic crashes or whatever. Those things have happened ever since the beginning of mankind. We don't have to fear that stuff. Because Jesus raised from the dead, and all of that is details and pales in comparison for what our future is. Because we don't have to live by fear, we can live by hope, right? That's good stuff to be excited about. Things that we can really latch on to. Let me go back to what Luke read here just a minute ago. In John chapter 11, Lazarus has passed away. He's been in the tomb. Jesus hears about it. He waits. But he ends up coming, and it's a time where Jesus Christ... He knows that Lazarus is going to be raised, but Jesus identifies with us. He identifies with that hurt, with that pain, and he weeps. But as he's talking to Martha here, Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. See, she had been listening to Jesus. She knew what was coming. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's the same question that all of us have to wrestle with. And for myself, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents taught me about the resurrection, but there was a time where I had to wrestle through that myself. And I dug into Josh McDowell's stuff, I dug into C.S. Lewis's stuff, I dug into a lot of different things to say, is this real, is it really there? And I came away with believing. Yes, it did happen. And because of that, I had to make a decision. I had to make changes in my own life. I had to align myself with the purpose of God, knowing that the future is better than the past, and decided, I don't know I do this very well, but I'm in process that I'm not going to live with fear like the rest of the world does because ultimately I had to answer this question that Jesus asked Martha do you believe she'll raise from the dead The answer is absolutely yes if you'd like to become a Christian today or you like prayers of the church you're welcome to head to the back the elders are back there and they'll uh, pray with you walk beside you in whatever you may be going through in life and I'm excited about the resurrection someday right i know that I'm getting older you're getting older Someone, actually one of the little neighborhood kids in my neighborhood the other day, she's a little little girl, I walked by and she said, Hey, Mr. Chris, I like your haircut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very nice. Well said, right? I'm getting closer to heaven every day, and so are you. And that's something that we can really be excited about. We're going to go into the Lord's Supper, and then we'll sing our way out. Have a blessed Lord's Day.